Well, as we come to Romans chapter 6, and I know you've had some opportunities to read that, study that, discuss that. For the teaching, I want to start with an illustration, one that hopefully is familiar to many of us who have studied American history in the past. And the American Civil War in the 1860s was fought between the North and the South largely over the issue of slavery. And in the third year of the war, President Abraham Lincoln issued what is called the Emancipation Proclamation, which declared all slaves in the rebellious states to be, quote, thenceforward and forever free. It would be another two years before Congress officially passed the the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, freeing more than three million enslaved people. And while the question of slavery was settled and slavery was abolished, many of those who were born as slaves and brought up as slaves continued to live as slaves, forgetting that they were indeed free. Now we might be thinking, why didn't they just act like freed men and women? Well, as you can imagine, they had to learn to consider themselves no longer to be slaves. And understandably, it took many of them some time because they tended to act according to their former habits, customs, and practices, which had been long ingrained into them. The way these former slaves had to adapt and live according to their new position, status, and identity was to constantly remind them and to be convinced of what was true about them, that they were no longer slaves, but free. And we can draw a connection from this historical illustration to our identity as believers and disciples of Christ today. You and I, having been justified by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, have undergone a complete change in our spiritual condition never to go back. As Christians, our objective position has changed entirely and forever from those who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, according to Ephesians chapter 2, to those who are now dead to sin, from those who are slaves of sin and enemies of God, to now those who are freed from sin to become slaves of his righteousness all by his grace. But this glorious reality of our position in Christ is often clouded by the fact that we still struggle in our flesh. Though we have been set apart and delivered from the reign and rule of sin in our lives, we are not immune from the influence of sin or freed from its presence. Does anyone else feel the inward tension of the flesh? or the outward pull of the world? Any of you ever struggle at times with assurance of salvation? Well, if you do, you're in good company because that is the common experience of every believer. That we are warned in scripture not to presume upon God's grace, but to test ourselves through the lens of scripture, to see whether we are truly in the faith, 
letter of 1 John, for example, was given to us for that reason. However, for every believer, because of indwelling sin, there will be a gap between our objective position and our subjective experience. But God has promised that as we work out our salvation and as we mature in Christ, that gap will grow smaller and smaller through the process of progressive sanctification. And just like the slaves who were liberated during the American Civil War, who needed to be reminded that they were free, we need to know, to remember, and constantly keep before us who and what we are in Christ. As we battle sin, fight for holiness, and live according to our new identity in Christ, through the power and grace of the gospel. If I can have my first slide. So here is the authorial intent of Romans chapter 6, and we'll walk through it together during the time we have together. Embracing by faith and keeping before ourselves who and what we are, as those who are dead to sin and belonging to God through our union with Jesus Christ, we are to pursue sanctification according to the power of the gospel that is actively at work in us. Again, we'll walk through each portion of this statement together, but this is a summary of God's word to us through the Apostle Paul, recorded here in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 23, as he writes to the saints in Rome. And it's prompted by a set of questions in verses 1 through 3, and again in verses 15 through 16. And that's how we would divide this section into two parts as is introduced by a series of rhetorical questions. Look with me starting at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Literally, may it never be. Or my translation would be, are you nuts? Right? How can we who die to sin still live in it? Now skip down to verse 15. And as we read, pay attention to these repeated words. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Again, are you nuts? In each of these occasions, the Apostle Paul answers the question he poses with a question and will build upon his argument. But before we go there, let's back up and consider the context of this passage. Obviously, the words, what then, links it to what Paul had previously stated. And what is that? If I can cut my next slide. Well, leading up to Romans chapter 6, and if you remember that the chapters divisions were not part of the original epistle, but were later added on, so we're to read it as one continuous letter. But the immediate context of our passage in Romans is Romans Chapter 5, verses 20 through 21, which I'll read for us. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, 
so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Did you guys capture the flow? Essentially, Paul is raising a seemingly possible deduction from what he had previously stated. Based on the fact that where sin once reigned, grace abounds all the more to us who are in Christ. This comes at the end of a section, Romans 5, 12 through 21, where he, where he had just compared and contrasted our union with Christ with our union with Adam. That as we once were in Adam, we are now in Christ all the more. And specifically the word grace, which is repeated multiple times here, encapsulates all that comes before. That as believers, having been justified by faith, we've been given a salvation that is altogether complete, absolutely free, and entirely secure through our union with Jesus Christ. Salvation is not just the forgiveness of our sins, a ticket to heaven, or a get-out-of-hell card. That's a very shallow view of our salvation in Christ. The salvation that you and I enjoy today is one that's complete from beginning to end, from justification to glorification. And it is entirely the work of God accomplished through the life, the death, and resurrection of his Son, such that we who were once his enemies now have peace in our relationship with him, having been reconciled to him through the cross. But not only that, through Christ, we have also obtained access or entrance by faith into this grace in which we stand as we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. All that to say, the result of being justified by faith is that we now have peace with God where there once was war. We find favor and enjoy his blessing as we approach his throne of grace for mercy and grace to help every day of our lives. And we are promised a future glory that is certain to come. And it all comes to us by grace through faith. But not only that, verse 3, as we face suffering in this life, and there's no shortage of it living in this fallen world, we rejoice, Paul writes, in spite of our suffering. Is that what's written there in your Bibles? Right, that's how you and I often view our suffering, don't we? That it's to be avoided at all costs. But the word spite is not there. He writes, we rejoice in our suffering. We are able to embrace it by faith. Why? Not because we derive a sick pleasure from pain and suffering, but because we know that suffering has a sanctifying effect in our lives as believers. It promises to produce endurance, and endurance character, and character hope. And we can be absolutely sure of the final outcome. Because verse 5 the Father's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the loving 
and sanctifying work of the Father through the Holy Spirit. And in case we still had any reason to doubt, the Apostle Paul goes on to remind us that this great salvation is complete and secure in the fact that Christ died for us. Not for the righteous and good person, but for us who are sinners and enemies. And while we were still weak, helpless and hopeless, incapable of saving ourselves or pleasing God. The completeness of our salvation is a reflection of the completeness of the one who saves us. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, that is where we find assurance of our salvation, in the person and work of our triune God. And all of this comes to us by faith. And that's what Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 425, which Kevin had taught on, is all about. Our justification by faith. And this is an essential part of the gospel because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. In God's economy, we cannot be saved by works, only by grace. For none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And the reason we are in this mess in the first place is because of our works. As much as we'd like to believe or pretend, we are not good, nor do we seek God's glory. And for that reason, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do we forget this as we observe and live in the world that we live in today? The core issue with all the problems that we face relationally, politically, socially, economically, nationally, internationally, can be traced to our rejection of God. Therefore, the gospel and the gospel alone can save, for it is the power of God for salvation to every person who believes. Whether you are a Jew who was given the law or a Gentile who is also under the law, this is the good news that we celebrate as believers in Jesus Christ and members of God's household. Well, that's all context leading to our passage for tonight. But hopefully none of us will ever get too tired of hearing and remembering how great, how complete, how free, and how secure is our salvation we have in Christ. And all this doctrine covering the first five chapters and through the first 10 verses of chapter six is the grounds upon which Paul will give his very first exhortations in his letter found in our text this evening. So let's return to Romans chapter six, if I can have my next slide. As I mentioned previously in both places, the apostle Paul answers his question with a question. In doing so, he follows the examples of Jesus, particularly in his interactions with the Pharisees. But here, Paul doesn't address legalists as Jesus did in his days, but antinomians, those who would say, well, why not continue to sin so that grace may abound? And since we're under grace anyway and not the law, as clearly and previously established, 
Shouldn't we live however we please? In the end, it doesn't matter, right? We are all saved by grace anyway. I don't know about you, but seems like a logical deduction to me. But Paul's response could not be stronger. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's not only preposterous, it's impossible. For do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Later he writes, starting in verse 15, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. A couple observations we can make. First, notice that the Apostle Paul repeats in verse 3 and 16, do you not know? Furthermore, he states in the affirmative, we know that our old self was crucified, verse 6, and we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again, verse 9. As believers, there are certain things that we are to know as true, as it has been revealed to us in the written and unchanging word of God. Especially in our battle against sin and pursuit of holiness, it is vitally important for us to constantly keep in mind what is true of Christ and what he accomplished through his crucifixion and resurrection. And by extension, what is true of us and what has been accomplished for us. We can become so focused on our experience, our problems, and struggle against sin that we take our eyes off Christ. And the moment we do, we cut ourselves off from the only source of power that can advance us in our sanctification. I would propose to us that in our pursuit of holiness, we often have it completely backwards. Also in our counseling of others, how often do we begin with us and with our problems? We focus on our practice, put off, put on, and disconnect it from our doctrine, who God is and what he has done and what he has purposed to do in us. Men, in our battle against sexual purity, we throw accountability, discipline, and all the things we must do and not do. All the while, we fail to keep before ourselves what we ought to know for certain about the gospel. No wonder we struggle in our sanctification because we remove the true source and motivation for change when the doctrine of the gospel is not the basis of its application. Instead, we must not begin with ourselves, but with Christ, who he is, what he has done, and what he promises to do in us. It is only then that we can view ourselves rightly, that on account of our union with Christ, that because we have been baptized into Christ, united with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, certain things are true of us. 
So what are those things that are true of us who are in Christ? Look with me at verse 4. Because we have been baptized into Christ Jesus and specifically into his death, and were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the death by the glory of the Father, we too are not only enabled, but also called to walk in newness of life. For, and here's Paul's detailed explanation of what he had just stated, for we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Here's another observation we can make. In the verses we just read, in the terms of what we are to know with certainty, do you see anything there about what we did? Again, it's all about what Christ has done and what has happened to us because of what he has done. Every reference to us is in the Greek aorist or past tense and in the passive voice. It's done to us. And it happened once and for all when we were justified by faith. At the point of our justification, we were baptized into Christ, buried with him, and raised to newness of life. Our old self was crucified, referring to our old identity and position in Adam. And having been set free, we are no longer enslaved to sin. None of it was done by us. All of it was done to us. For salvation is by grace through faith. It is not our own doing, not a result of our works, but the gift of God. If I can have my next slide. All that can be summarized to say that as believers, on account of our union with Christ and what he has done for us, we are once and for all dead to sin. Formerly, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In saying that we were dead in sin, Paul there is referring to the realm and sphere in which we used to walk. In the deadness of our trespasses, we were in the iron fist and death grip of sin. Under its tyranny and power, all we could do was to live in the passions of our flesh and carry out the desires of the body and the mind. But praise be to God, that in Christ, we who were once dead in sin have now died to sin. In other words, sin's reign over our lives has been broken. Our relationship to sin, in terms of its rule over us, has ended. To be clear, Paul is not making a case for sinless perfection. We still deal with the presence and influence of sin upon our lives. Yet we who are in Christ are dead to sin's reign and rule. Neither it nor death as the consequence of sin has dominion over us. That's how he puts it in verse 9. For death 
no longer has dominion over Christ, who died to sin once for all and was raised by the glory of the Father. This is our position, our identity as believers, which comes to us through our union with Christ. But that's only the negative aspect of our salvation. In Christ, we died once and forever to sin. But that's not all that grace accomplished. On the positive side, we live to God. For the believer, there's been a complete and irreversible change in our position and relationship to sin's reign, which has ended, and to God's reign, which has begun. While sin used to reign and rule over us, the moment we come to Christ, suddenly we are made alive to God and granted an entirely new life in which grace now rules and reigns. That's what it means that we die to sin and are alive to God through our union with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 explicitly states, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And according to God's word, dual citizenship is not an option. Either you are in Adam or you are in Christ. Either you are in the kingdom of this world or you are in the kingdom of God. You cannot be in both, for they are mutually exclusive. Our old identity has been replaced by a new one, and with it comes the calling to walk in newness of life. That is what is consistently taught throughout the scriptures. And by the way, this is an objective reality that is true of every believer, for every true child of God, however young or spiritually mature you are. This is not a subjective experience, nor is it a progressive one. If you are a believer today, these things have already happened to you, regardless of how you might feel or think. And as we continue to follow Paul's argument, we'll see that it is absolutely necessary to know these things well, to keep them before ourselves, and to grow in them as Christians. Why? Because these essential truths of the gospel serve as the divine power and ultimate motivation for our sanctification. But that's not the only reason or motivation that's given for our sanctification. When we come to the second half of our passage, introduced by another set of questions, the Apostle Paul uses an illustration that would have been very familiar to the Christians in Rome in the first century. Verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? In other words, since adherence to the law is no longer a condition of acceptance with God, why not continue to live in sin? And to prove the fallacy of the deduction drawn, Paul answers the question just raised with a question. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And as he carries this analogy of slavery through the rest of this chapter, he argues once again that such a suggestion to continue to live and abide in sin is not only ridiculous, but impossible. For the one who, having been justified by faith, is under the power of grace. First, he tells them, as he previously did, 
what they were to know. Namely, the principle that all of us are by nature slaves of the one whom we obey. This is a universal spiritual reality. It is true of the believer as well as the unbeliever. This was true of them, whether they were slaves in society or owners of slaves at the time. And they were to know this as true and to know it well as it's been made known to them through divine revelation. Do you not know that you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Then starting in verse 17, Paul goes on to apply this truth to their present lives as believers. That while they were once slaves of sin, they had been set free from bondage of sin to become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which they were committed. And we might call that doctrine. So that they might continue and live in sin? Right? Obviously not. It makes no sense to go back to that which they were freed from. But notice the unexpected outcome. They were freed from slavery to sin to become slaves of righteousness, from bondage to bondage. Now we have to stop and think about that one, don't we? We don't like to see ourselves as slaves, especially in America where slavery is associated with many of the things that are wrong with this society. But however we might feel or think about it, this is God's revelation. And as believers, we are not only to submit to it, but constantly keep it before us, especially in our pursuit of sanctification. This divine truth we find not only here in Romans chapter 6, but throughout the epistles where Paul even refers to himself as a bondservant or slave of Christ. Christ himself stated that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And even if we were to go back to the Old Testament, the Israelites were freed from oppression and slavery in Egypt. To what end? That they might serve and be devoted entirely to the one true living God to whom they belonged. So then, we see that this is not a novel concept or doctrine, but one that has been true from the very beginning. Because of the doctrine of original sin, because of who we were in Adam, all of us are born as slaves to sin. And according to verse 21, this life of slavery to sin, though it may have yielded some temporary pleasure, bore no good or lasting fruit, bringing shame and ultimately death in the end. But when we were freed from sin and born again through the agency of the Holy Spirit, we were reborn as slaves of God. And having been bought with a price, we are not our own. There is a transfer of ownership that has taken place. No longer are we under the dominion, the tyranny, the oppression and reign of sin. Instead, we belong to a new master, one who is altogether different. For the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this new life, unlike our former one, produces fruit that leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life, verse 22. 
such that in this life we can have every hope and assurance that he who began a good work in us, starting with our justification, but leading to our sanctification, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, our glorification. So then we return to the original questions that prompted this whole discussion. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue that grace? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to continue in sin because we are not under grace, but under, under, not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. For if we truly understand the gospel of grace, not only what we have been saved from, sins reign and rule over us, but what also what we are saved unto, a completely new life of grace in Christ, expressed in obedience from the heart and service to God. How can we possibly continue in sin? If I can have my next slide. It's utterly foolish and absurd, let alone impossible, for we are under the power of grace. It's completely contrary to the gospel, to make such a suggestion reveals an outright misunderstanding of grace, its whole purpose and intended result. For according to Titus 2, starting in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what is the saving grace set out to do? Verse 12, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions put off and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, put on, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. For what purpose? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. To continue to live and abide in sin as a pattern or habit of practice goes against everything that grace is intended to do. To separate and de deliver us from our bondage to sin and to make us holy like our Savior. So brothers and sisters, as we move into our application of the text found in verses 11 through 13 and 19, I pose the same questions to us that the Apostle Paul did to the saints in Rome. Do you know this to be absolutely certain and true? That we are dead to sin, alive to God through our union with Christ. That this is our objective position in Christ, regardless of how we might feel or think. That negatively, we are no longer enslaved to sin or under its oppressive rule. Christ having died once and for all, for all our trespasses and raised to life for our justification. That positively, now and forever, we belong to God and live under his abounding grace, which has set us on a course of sanctification that ends with eternal life. Assuming you believe all this to be true, then verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Finally, after the Apostle Paul has taken more than five chapters presenting and establishing the doctrines of grace as the foundation of our sanctification, 
we come to the practice of it. Here's his application exhortation that's drawn from a right understanding of grace. Not that we would continue in sin, by no means, but that we would regard ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. He doesn't just offer up a suggestion. He gives a command, and not just any command, but one that demands a specific response in light of everything that's been said up to this point. Paul writes, So you also must, that is of necessity, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If I can have my next slide. Actually, go back to the previous one. Thanks. In the Greek, the word consider can be translated to reckon, count, or regard as true. It's the same Greek word that is used by the apostle throughout Romans chapter 4, where Abraham at the age of 99 accepted God's word regarding the promise of a son. Abraham believed what God said was true, despite everything to the contrary, and it was counted to him as righteousness. More than just giving it a passing thought, The command means to actively and continually embrace by faith who and what we are in Christ. Not in one year and out the other, but to constantly keep it before us, to know it as true and to know it for certain, and to know it well, despite how we might feel at times. Not because of our own experience, but simply because that's what God has said. It's worth noting that this is where the Apostle Paul begins in the practice of gospel sanctification, to have us consider before we do anything else our identity and position in Christ. And if we were to compare it to our own practice of sanctification, that's typically not where we would begin. If you're like me, when I sin, whether it's in anger toward my kids or discontentment with a situation at work, my thoughts gravitate toward How do I fix the situation? What do I need to do to get rid of this sin? Where can I find relief from it? We need to stop for a moment, forget ourselves and what we need to do, and remember Jesus Christ and who we are in him. And it's not enough to simply know about our position or to be familiar with these things. It is essential that we embrace this doctrine of the gospel, keep it ever before us, and grow in our conviction and appreciation of it. For it is only to the extent that we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God and anchor ourselves in this truth that we are able to live out our new identity in Christ. And as we come to verses 12 through 13, the Apostle Paul exhorts us to live in a way that is consistent with what is already true of us by virtue of being united to Christ. Look with me at verse 12, starting there. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Having established our objective position as believers in Christ, the Apostle Paul moves to our subjective experience. At the same time, he moves from the indicative to the imperative, from what he has already done to us to what we are now to do in response. He's saying to them, in light of the reality that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, 
live as who you are. In this, we see that our justification is vitally connected to our sanctification. And it's always a one-way street. It always goes from justification to sanctification, never the other way around. When we as believers try to justify ourselves through our works, and perhaps some of you have experienced this before, it's like someone driving in the wrong direction on a one-way street. For example, when we give or serve in the church to compensate for our spiritual struggles, or when we base how we're doing spiritually and whether we've read the Bible that day. Right? According to our passage, it is our justification, how God declares sinners righteous on the basis of what Christ has done that serves as the greatest motivation and hope for our sanctification. Guilt, discipline, fear of hell, fear of man, fear of consequences can never motivate or empower us in our fight against sin only the grace that is found in the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Well, there was a former member of our church who claims that he was saved at our church, but soon afterwards felt that he wasn't growing at our church. There were clearly issues of discontentment in his life, which he would acknowledge when pointed out. But at the end of the day, he blamed it on the fact that the sermons were not sufficient for him. Pastor Mark preaches the same thing over and over again. I've heard it so many times. I feel like I'm listening to the same sermon each week. It's always about the gospel. Do you ever feel that way? I do. But perhaps it's not by coincidence. The same person explained to me when I was an unbeliever, that's what I needed to hear to be saved. But now that I'm a Christian, it's insufficient for my needs and the struggles in my life. Now, based on what Paul has been belaboring here, would you agree with him that gospel proclamation is primarily for the unbeliever? It's not meant for us who have come to faith in Christ. We might even accuse the Apostle Paul of saying the same thing over and over again in his letters, maybe in a slightly different way or with a different emphasis for a different audience. But let's not forget that Paul was writing to the church in Rome, to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Colossae and Philippi and Crete. Presumably there were unbelievers there, but Christians were whom he had in mind when he proclaimed the gospel of grace. And as we return to our text, Paul defines for us the battleground for our sanctification. He writes, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Our mortal body refers to our physical being. It's the realm in which sin seeks to take hold of us, to assert and exert its influence over us. While in Christ we are truly dead into sin, dead is not sin, uh, dead is not, sorry, sin is not dead, but alive and is actively seeking opportunities to express itself through our flesh. To put it another way, through the cross, we are freed from the penalty and power of sin, but its presence remains as long as we are alive and exist in our mortal bodies. Thus the necessity for this command to not allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies 
and to make us obey its passions. For we are no longer under sin's dominion, but empowered by his grace. In the next verse, Paul moves from the general to the specific. Verse 13 says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And if we consider the surrounding context, the members here refers to the members of our body, its individual parts as opposed to the whole. And the idea of presenting ourselves and our bodies is and our members is really about making ourselves available or for our particular use or putting ourselves at the service or disposal of another. Paul is essentially saying, don't allow your body to be used for sin and for unrighteous means. Instead, devote yourselves wholly to God and to his righteousness. It is a clear command to personal holiness. And this is the doctrine of gospel sanctification and is what every believer of Jesus Christ is called to do. And when we come to the second half of our passage, he draws the same exact conclusion and application. Verse 19, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And in typical Pauline fashion, he tells us not only what we are to put off, but also what we are to put on. Instead of impurity and lawlessness to which we were at one time enslaved, we are now to present ourselves as belonging to God and slaves of his righteousness in light of who we are in Christ. The implication is that until we are in our graves, sin will always be trying to master and control our mortal bodies and its members. And rather than letting down our guard, we must not allow our faculties whether our speech, our actions, our emotions, our desires, even our imaginations, to be used in the service of sin. And as he would go on later to say, we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And to devote ourselves to this, not in our own strength, but through the power and grace of the gospel. And the apostle gives a similar argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he exhorts the church in Corinth to flee sexual immorality in a message very much relevant to our church and culture today. Right? He writes, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your members, uh, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So then, what's Paul's conclusion based upon the truths that they were to know? Verse 20, so glorify God in your body. This is what sanctification is ultimately about. Which brings us back to our authorial tent, if I can have my final slide. Embracing by faith and keeping before ourselves who and what we are in Christ, as those who are dead to sin and belonging to God, we are to pursue sanctification according to the power of the gospel that is actively at work in us. Right? This is the 
doctrine of gospel sanctification, which begins not with us, our struggles and our problems, but with God. And in that we find our greatest hope and motivation. For it is his divine purpose to save sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of his Son, as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. But not only his divine purpose, but also his divine presence in the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and sanctifies us as we walk in him and not in the flesh to the end that we might be holy as he is holy. But not only his purpose and presence in our lives, but also his divine power, the immeasurable greatness of his power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places is available to us, those of us who believe. But not only his purpose, his presence and his power, which is at work in us, but also his divine promise that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So then, as we struggle in our flesh against indwelling sin, as we struggle against the temptations of the world and against the attacks of the evil one, let us fix our hope in the gospel, never separating what God has joined together, our justification and our sanctification, our position and our practice, our identity and our calling. And as we have been given everything that we need for life and godliness, his purpose, his promise, his power, and his presence. Let us by faith work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure and for our sanctification. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word once again, is to consider how great a savior you are and how great a salvation we have in Christ. None of this we deserve. It all comes to us by grace, through faith. Lord, as we consider these things in our lives and as we consider your calling for us, help, out, help us, Lord, to live out our new identity in Christ. As we put off our old self, as we put on the new self, as we die to the, the things of this world and the indwelling sin that is, that is raging in our hearts, Lord, help us to put on Christ and help us to remember that in all these things, our hope is in the gospel, that the work that you have started in us, you promised to complete in the day of Jesus Christ. We thank you and pray all these things in your name. Amen.